I'd like to talk this morning about what a life of true worship really looks like. I know there's been a real resurgence in this century of the idea of worship, as if it was something that the evangelical church had lost and needs to regain. And uh, I think the most unfortunate part of this resurgence in the the emphasis on worship is that a lot of it has been relegated to experience. And if I were to ask you this morning, when on this day did you worship God? What would you say? I think most of us would probably say, well, I worshiped God while I was here in this building. I worshiped God at church. And specifically, I worshiped God while the music was playing. And I kind of closed my eyes and listened to the, the text of the music and let it flow through me, and I, I got into it, and, and that was when I was worshiping. And I would guess that probably most Christians would describe their worship in something like that, in terms like those, where worship is an experience that, uh, where you become absorbed into the external sights and sounds that are created by whoever's leading, leading the the worship service or leading the music. And my point today is, especially as we look at the life of Job, that our idea of worship really should be a lot broader than that. Be a lot broader than simply a time where we sit even together as a congregation. And did we worship this morning already? Sure. Absolutely we did. And we'll look at some specific things about worship and why that was true. But is that all there is to worship? And my answer this morning is a resounding no. That's not all there is to worship. There's a lot more to worship and living a life of worship. And I think anybody who's a Christian, anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, would be concerned about worshiping God. As we give ourselves over to the Lord, even as we just read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, our lives should be living sacrifices holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service of worship. And so I think worship obviously should be a primary focus on what we're doing as believers. I could spend a long time this morning sharing with you example after example after example of how people have expressed worship over time in history and even now today in our current age from the very conservative and simple to the very bizarre and complex ways that people express worship to God. But really, I'm not that concerned about what people do. And neither should you. you know, what, what X church is doing in another part of the country, we should be less concerned about that than we should be concerned about what pleases God and what He's revealed to us that pleases Him and be more concerned about that. I'd like to look, just give you a brief overview in the scriptures of worship and what we're talking about when we say worship. By just looking at the words, um, the Hebrew and the Greek have at least three corresponding words uh, that are used both in the Old and New Testaments to describe what we're talking about here when we talk about worship. Uh, there's The first word in the Greek is shaha, S-H-A-H-A, and it has a corresponding Greek word which is proskuneo. And both of those words have to do with bowing down, to prostrate oneself, to to lay on the ground with your hands outstretched in a 
in a submissive fashion uh, before the object that's being worshipped. And it's an, it's an outward act of bowing, but it reflects an inward heart of humility and submission to the one that you're bowing down to. Um, it denotes, obviously, a high view of God. If we are going to bow ourselves before God, then we understand that God is worthy of that. And we're going to submit ourselves to him in that way, bow ourselves to him. And it also reflects um, a low view of ourselves. and We understand our sinful nature. So that as we come before God as sinners, we know that God is perfect. We are imperfect. And so we bow ourselves or prostrate ourselves on the ground. Second word is the word yare, Y-A-R-E, the corresponding Greek word in the New Testament, sebomai, and both of these words here refer to the fear of God. Fear of God. Not so much the fear of dread or horror, like we would be afraid of a snake or a spider or, or somebody lurking around the corner or something like that, um, but it would be a fear that is characterized by complete, being completely awestruck. We are amazed would be a word that would be corresponding to this. We fear God because of his greatness, because of who he he is. And we recognize his greatness and his majesty. And so we respond to that in fear, in awe. The third set of words, Greek word is abad, A-B-A-D. And the Greek word is letruo. And these words denote work, labor, or service. And we find in the, both Old and New Testaments that when worship is, is being accomplished or done, that oftentimes it's associated with service, associated with work that we do for the Lord. Most often in the Old Testament, this was the priest. As they worshiped God, they worked in the tabernacle or the temple of God. Um, we also see this link, if you'd like to turn there for a moment, in Luke chapter 4. Keep, keep your finger in Job. In Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus' response to Satan who had been tempting him in the wilderness. And we know that as Satan came to tempt Jesus, his response each time to the various temptations that Satan laid before him was to quote Scripture and to come right back with um, an Old Testament verse. But I'd like you to look specifically at verses 7 and 8. where Satan was tempting Jesus to worship him rather than God. Verse 7 says, Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. He was offering the kingdoms of of this earth to Jesus as if he had a right to give them to him. And the condition was, according to Satan, that Jesus needed to bow down to Satan and acknowledge him as the great one. And of course, that was never going to happen. And Jesus answered and said in verse 8, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And so you see a real clear connection in this verse and the response that Jesus gave between worship and service. And so worship is not just this, uh, this corporate act where we come and sit and, and enjoy the singing and enjoy praising or whatever, but also service. And you see that also in Romans chapter 12, verse one, which we looked at, it is our when we uh, live or present our bodies as living sacrifices, he calls that our reasonable service of worship. 
there are a couple other concepts that you can't really divorce from the idea of worship. So, so far we've had worship is bowing down to God, understanding that we have a high view of God. We have the idea of fearing God, understanding His greatness and just being awestruck by who God is Himself. And also this idea of service or work that we perform for God as we worship Him. Three other things that are involved here in worship. One of them is that worship is a response. Worship isn't something intrinsic that we just generate from within ourselves. It's a response to what we already know about God. We love God because He first loved us. We learn about God. We experience God in our own lives, and therefore we have a response. And that response is worship. We see God working in our lives. We worship Him. We see God working in the lives of others. We worship Him. And it's not... um, Again, something intrinsic. It's not something that's generated from within the human heart, but it's a, it's a response to God himself and our encounter with him. So it's a response. Another one is, if, you're, if worship is truly a response to God, what does that response look like? What's it characterized by? Mainly, adoration and praise. We come to God and we adore him. We love him. We express praise with our lips to Him. We, we talk about it. We say it. We live it. But it's adoration and praise. And that's, that characterizes worship. Words and actions that lift up and exalt the high nature of God. And then lastly, sacrifice. The concept of sacrifice is also connected with worship. You see that a lot in the Old Testament. Um, the, the Old Testament is full of references where sacrifices were written into uh, the law of Israel, animal sacrifices. Uh, The wise men, when they came to seek out Christ, came with gifts of sacrifice to worship Him. They had come to worship Him. Um, Again, going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable spiritual service of worship. And so we find this connection between worship and sacrifice as well. So boil all that down into into a quick definition. What what are we talking about when we say worship? Well, worship, you could say, is the humble response of a child of God to the revelation of the one true and living God. It's how we respond to God. Based on God's work in our life, It's directed to God Himself and it's expressed through the lips by praise and through the life in service. That's worship. So I'd like you to turn back to Job chapter 1 and look with me at what I consider to be one of the clearest examples in the Scripture of a man who was living this out in his life. What does it look like for you and me? What, What should our lives look like if we are truly worshipers of God what can we learn from this? The chapter divides itself up pretty easily. And if you look uh, in the New King James Version anyway, each of the verses that make the chapter divisions begin with the word now. New American Standard doesn't do that. But uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, we have now there was a man. In chapter 1, verse 6, we have now there was a day in heaven. In verse 13, now there was another day. On earth. So we're going to divide the chapter up into those three sections and take a look at each of those 
and see what we can learn about Job's life of worship. So, chapter 1, verse 1, point number 1, there was a man named Job. And we see the fact that he was a worshiper of God in a couple of different things in his life. First was the example of his character. Take a look at what Job was like. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was, and then they give four character, uh, character qualities of this man that were lived out. How he was living, this is how he was known and recognized. And those are that Job was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. Blamelessness. Blamelessness is the first characteristic qualification for an overseer of the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Blamelessness is not sinlessness. There's no such thing as that until we are in glory with God and our sin nature is removed. Until then, we're all going to sin. We're all going to fall short from time to time. So we're not talking about sinless perfection when we talk about blamelessness. Job was not absolutely perfect in everything that he did, but his life was characterized by this word, blamelessness. I've heard it illustrated a couple different ways. One of them is if you can picture a, a pole, like a telephone pole, that's been sanded smooth so that there's no rough edges or splinters or anything that you could catch your hand on. And if you took a piece of cloth and you threw it against that pole, what would happen? It would just slip down and it would fall off. There would be nothing, nothing to catch it. But if that pole had giant fish hooks on it, kind of sticking out at different angles and different places, and, and the pole had those hooks all the way up and you tossed the cloth, then it would stick and there would be something that would stick to it. Blamelessness is like the smooth pole. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely perfect. It just means that as a general character, as a general rule in life, you can't, you can't be blamed for anything. And it would be, the way I look at it is that you, you can't use general words that characterize people in a certain way, like liar. That man is a liar. He's known as a liar. He's not blameless. It doesn't mean that he never would lie ever. It just means that his life is not characterized by lies. It's characterized by the truth. And, and that way it would be blameless. Uh, a drinker. That person's a drunk or he drinks. You know, it doesn't mean that he's never taken a drink in his life. It means that his life is not characterized by that. Uh, irresponsible. Foolish. Unloving. Can't handle money. Can't handle his family. Those kinds of accusations in a person who's not blameless, they would stick. There'd be something there. But Job lived his life in such a way that people recognized that wasn't him. He was blameless. He wasn't a liar. He did handle his money right. He handled his business right. He handled his family right. There were, he, was, he was a blameless man. And I think that, that obviously that's part of our character. Quality, that's part of the character quality of a person who is worshiping God. It affects your life, and you're going to make decisions in your life that would result in character that's blameless. Second one is upright. He was blameless. He was also upright. Upright uh, refers to righteousness or rightness, simply making choices and uh, doing what is right. He was honest. He didn't cheat people. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and he chose to do right in his life. Why did he do that? 
just so that he could gain the respect of his peers, so that he could have a name for himself? I don't think so. I think he did what was right because he knew God. He understood that rightness and wrongness, that ethics, that morality itself stems from God who created us. And he wanted in his heart to please God and therefore chose things that were right. He wasn't in trouble with the law and all the parts of his life fit together with integrity so that people recognized this and called him upright. Third one is that he feared God. He feared God. We talked about this just briefly. But obviously if, God, if uh, Job feared God, he knew God. And he regularly communed with God. He was receiving information from God either reading about or talking about or thinking about, meditating on God himself. And because of the fact that he was doing that, he understood the character traits of God, knew that he was mighty, he knew that he was infinite, he knew that he was a judge, and he lived his life accordingly from what he knew about God. And like we said earlier, he would have been amazed and awestruck at God himself. So he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God. And then the last one was he shunned evil. Shunned evil. In the New American Standard, it says turning away from evil. He knew the difference, like we said, between right and wrong. He recognized when people were committing sin and doing things that were evil. And Job turned away from that. It wasn't that he never confronted it. He probably did. It's just that he never got involved with it. I don't think turning away means that he turned a blind eye to, you know, if he saw somebody that was uh, being cheated or he saw somebody that was being oppressed. It wasn't that Job turned away from that and just ignored it. He just didn't get involved with the extortion or the, the cheating or the lying or whatever was going on in the business world with his family or anyplace else and turned away from all of that. He took no bribes. He didn't get involved with extortion or murder or stealing or the things that he knew were wrong. So he shunned evil. So the obvious question is, do we do the same thing? Are we concerned about blamelessness? Do we take a hard look at our lives and, and think about what our character is known as? What's our reputation in the Christian community especially? How do people think of us? Do they think of us as blameless? Do they think of us as upright? Do they think of us as fearing God? Would that be, somebody asked the question, what is so-and-so like? And you fill in your name. Would, would any of this show up in the description? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves because I believe that a life of worship is going to look like this. It's part of what worship is. Not just coming here on Sundays and singing together, but actually living for the Lord in every corner of our lives. So we had the example of his character. We also in this first section have the example of his family life. Take a look at verse 2 and verse 5. <clears throat> we know in verse 2 that he had a large family. Job was married, had a wife, and also had seven sons and three daughters, so ten children total. And uh, we've got four kids, and that's enough. I am amazed at the people who keep going and uh, continue to have children and work with them and raise them and love them. What are the hippies up to? Nine. And there's another family in Danville that I know. And uh, I think they're up to either 12 or 13 children. 
and I've heard of even more than that. But we also know from the Lord that happy is the man who has his quiver full of them, and them referring to children. Children are a heritage of the Lord. And so Job was blessed, and especially in his day historically, the more children you had, especially sons, the more blessed you were as a family. And so Job was, in, was a family man. He loved his family, and that's going to become evident here in a second. Um, but just realize that he, he was not alone. He had a family. He was connected with his family. And in verse 5, we see a little, get a little insight into Job's uh, relationship, especially to his children. It says, it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Job was acting as a priest for his family. He was acting as a go-between between them and God. And why was he doing that? I believe it was because he loved his family, he loved his children enough to do this for them. Um, talked about him consecrating them or sanctifying them. and He would do that by getting up early and praying for them by name and making offerings for them just in case they sinned. You ever think about doing that for your kids? We're more prone to just complain about our kids and all the problems that we have with them, if they're disobedient especially, and we talk about them or whatever. Job, Job was concerned about their souls. Now, these were adult children, obviously, not little children. But he rose up in the morning, every morning, and made offerings, sacrifices, burnt offerings, which obviously took time. He had to gather the materials to be able to do that. And he did it according to the number of each one of them, for each of his children. And it says at the end of the verse, for Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned. He didn't know that they had sinned, per se, but he was worried about the fact that maybe they had, maybe in their heart, it says that they cursed God. Maybe it's not showing up on their life outside, but I am so concerned about the souls of my kids that I'm worried that maybe on the inside they're not really truly serving God. They're not really truly worshiping God and they're cursing God in their heart. So I'm going to go and I'm going to pray to God and offer a burnt offering for them on their behalf. And perhaps God will accept that and forgive them. What a guy. What a father to be able to do this morning after morning. I, I do believe that it shows a great example of love for family. Which is a second characteristic of a person who's leading a worshipful life for God. He's going to recognize the importance of family and it's going to show up in his life. Thirdly, we have the example of uh, the community around him, his community life. You could call this his business life. Um, verse 3 gives us an incredible picture of what Job's business was like. I can't imagine this. His possessions were 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Anybody ever have a donkey? <clears throat> I, I've never had large animals. I've had uh, dogs and cats and fish, crabs, rabbits, a bird. But that's about it. I've never owned a horse, never owned an ox or a cow, 
we go up to the Deerfield Fair and we all are amazed at how huge these animals are and the work that they can do and the strength that they have. 500 donkeys. Where would you put them? They won't fit in my house. I don't have enough land to support probably even two. So obviously Job had some stuff. Job had real estate. He had land in order to support all these animals. Now, I would imagine that taking care of large animals is a full-time job. And you would have to have some skill and some knowledge with that. I don't know what donkeys eat. I can guess, but I might guess wrong, and maybe I'd kill them if I fed them the wrong thing. I would have to know what they eat. I would have to know what the dangers are that, that would attack my animals, and I would have to know where they would need to spend the night if it was cold. Can they be outside? Can they be inside? I don't know. You know I'd, I'd have to learn these things. So obviously there's some skill involved there. But how are you going to do that with 500 animals? Job couldn't do all this himself, obviously. He had servants. And if you have servants, that means you hired them. If you hired them, that means you're running a business. So Job had a very large business. How many people does it take to, to care for 500 donkeys? I have no clue. No idea. I would imagine more than one. Probably in the tens, if not maybe hundred. I don't know. How, how many people would you need to take care of that many animals? But that wasn't all he had. That's just donkeys. You move on to oxen, he had 500 more of those. Those are bigger animals, stronger animals. Animals that are used for plowing fields. Animals that are yoked together to work. Job had servants that took care of his oxen. On top of that, sheep. Again, these, to me, the numbers are staggering. Maybe they're not to you. Maybe you know farmers that have more than this, and they, they run them. But 7,000 animals? Wow. It's a lot to keep track of. How would you count them? Would you know where they are? Where would you take them? you got to get food for 7,000 animals? I know that I have some friends of mine who have dogs, and they, they spend a lot of money on dog food dogs, especially the bigger dogs, go through these bags of food like they're nothing. Sheep, I guess, you've know, you got to provide food from somewhere. They're going to eat outside. You're going to grow food for them to eat. I don't know. 7,000 of them. And then camels. I know even less about camels. And yet he had 3,000 of those. All that to say, Job was involved with his community. He knew a lot of people. And I would guess that these animals were not just a hobby of his. But they produced. They produced something. They either produced meat to eat, or they produced wool for clothing, or they produced milk that was sold in the market, and so forth. And so there was a lot of buying and selling, and I'm sure Job would, uh, would know a lot of people near and far. And actually, when you get further on into the book of Job, we know that Job's three friends came and tried to comfort him. They came a distance. They traveled to come and see Job. They weren't in his town. They were, they were from far away. So Job probably had business dealings that went miles and miles away from where he was. And even there, his friends recognized that Job was a man of integrity. They said it over and over. So Job's, the example of Job's community life was what? They recognized him as an honest man. He was well-respected. He was a successful business person took care of money in an honest way. And on top of that, I want you to look at chapter 4 for a moment. Verses 3 and 4. 
when Job's three friends do arrive on the scene, Eliphaz is the first one to speak. And he actually extols some of these qualities in Job's life. And if you look at verse 3 and 4, a couple of interesting things are said. Behold, you have admonished many. What does that mean? It means Job was a counselor. He was an elder, a wise man. People had come to him for advice. And he admonished them. Gave them good counsel. And you have strengthened weak hands. Again, you have to speculate a little bit as to what that might mean. But people who are characterized by weakness would come to Job and he strengthened them. What exactly that means, I don't know, but he was obviously compassionate for those who had problems or were weak and gave them what they needed to be strengthened. Whether that was anything physical or good advice or whatever it might be, but Job was helpful that way when people came to him. You've strengthened weak hands. Verse 4, your words have helped the tottering to stand a man of wisdom and you have strengthened the feeble knees all of these pictures of job's active life in the community people around him probably his family members but probably other people as well would come to job and he'd help them so you get a get a picture of what job's life was like he's an honorable man which i believe characterizes the way that we should live if we are truly worshiping god Worship is not a one-day activity. It's a life. And it's going to show up in your life as blamelessness, uprightness, fearing God, shunning evil, loving family, having people in the community respect you and understand who you are, a life of wisdom. All of that is going to be wrapped up in worship because we understand who God is. And our lives will, will be that way. So that's the first section. There was a man named Job. That was his life. At this point, we have the curtain drawn back, kind of like in The Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We don't want you to see him. But here, God willingly reveals himself to us. Although, as you read through the text, Job had no idea of what was going on here. So you've got to keep that in mind, especially when we get to section 3, when Job responds to all of the stuff that happened to him. He didn't know about this conversation. He didn't know that uh, Satan had come before God and that God had had this conversation and that that was the reasoning behind it. You've got to keep that in mind. So, first there was a man named Job. Second, there was a day in heaven. We get this picture. And we're shown here at least three realities. One is the reality of heaven itself where God dwells. There's a lot of speculation about what heaven's going to be like. And there's very little actually written in the scripture textually about what heaven is like. We get some in the book of Revelation. But we know that heaven is described in the Bible as the place or the abode of God, the place where God is. Spiritual place. Don't believe it's a physical place that you could fly a plane or a rocket ship to. It's a, it's a spiritual place place in the spiritual realm and so we're shown that there is a reality of this but we're also shown the reality of angels there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves this is a clear reference to angels I'm not here this morning to describe angels and get into angels but simply to reflect we need to understand that they exist Uh, angels are seen from the very beginning in creation Right up on through to the end, uh, angels who are involved in the judgment in in the book of Revelation. 
There are many of them, many kinds of them, ranks of angels. We see angels uh, described in many ways, although one of the interesting things I think in the, in the Bible is that every time somebody comes face to face with an angel, they all respond the same way. Remember what that is? They fall down in fear. Take a look at it. Every time a man comes face to face with an angel, he drops to the ground. So you can get, gain a little bit of understanding and respect for this class of beings that God created called angels. And we see here that the, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And so they were out accomplishing whatever tasks they had been sent to do. And they were coming back and being accountable and reporting back to God as to what their activities were. And among them was this character we know as Satan. And so a third reality in this little section is the reality of Satan himself. The devil, that old serpent, the dragon, the betrayer, the liar, the murderer, the accuser. All of these descriptions we get of Satan from God's word. I want to pause here just for a second and remind you that if you are tempted to think that our world is characterized by a giant cosmic battle between good and evil, like Hollywood presents, get that totally out of your mind. There is no giant cosmic battle between God who represents good and Satan who represents evil as if they were equals, two titans battling it out together and we're hoping that, that good will win. That is nothing. There's nothing like that in the scriptures. And even this passage here gives us a lot of insight about the relationship between God and Satan. God is God. He is the creator. He is sovereign. There is no one higher than him. There is no one equal to him. He's it. There's no one else. And in the end, Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire and destroyed forever. He's already lost. So we don't have to worry about this, this battle taking place. Satan was a created being. He started off as a high-ranking angel. We know him as Lucifer. We see him in Ezekiel 26 and in Isaiah 14 as a proud angel who fell from heaven, booted out by God because of his pride. And we see him crop up over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in his entire being is bent on stopping God from doing whatever God wants to do. He opposes the program of God in your life and in the world, and he counterfeits the program of God in your life and in the world, and he wants rulership and worship. In any way that he can get it, he will get it. If it means disguising himself as an angel of light, if it means tricking you into thinking something is true when it's false, he will do whatever he can to do that. And we see some of his character come out here in this passage. So we see the reality of heaven. We see the reality of angels. We see the reality of Satan himself. We're also shown God's attitude toward his obedient children. And I like this. We see the sons of God come to present themselves before God and Satan is with them. And Satan doesn't speak first. God speaks first. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan. And he brings it up. 
I don't know if Satan was looking for this conversation or not. I think he was glad he got it once he got into it. But God brings up Job. He says, Satan, have you... Or He starts with the earlier conversation. Where do you come from? He says, I'm walking about on the earth, walking around on it. God says, have you, in verse 8, considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. Do you ever wonder what God thinks about you? I do. Maybe I'm weird. What is God going to say to me when I see him? What does God say to the angels about me in my life? What is God's assessment of my life? Think of anything else that would be the most important. Way more important than what you would think or what the community around me would think. What does God think? Am I going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant in the end? Look at, what, look at what God is doing here. Number one, he knew Job, he knew his name, called him by name. That tells us something about God, right? The good shepherd knows his sheep and calls them by name. He knows your name, he knows my name, he knows who we are. He also knew Job's position and his character. He calls him servant. He knew that God, uh, Job was a servant of God. And he described his character perfectly. Same description, obviously, as we had in verse 1. But God says this to Satan. Consider Job, he's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. And he shuns evil. And he was proud of him. He was bragging on him. Say that. Satan, look at Job. Marvelous man, man after my own heart. Look at his life. Have you considered him? This is my work, Satan. This is what I do in the lives and the hearts of men. I've created this and I've done this. We're also shown Satan's attitude toward the children of God. Basically as one of accusing the word devil means accuser. Exactly what he does here. And think of, the, think of the deviousness that Satan is using here too. Satan answered the Lord after God had just bragged about Job and asked if he considered him. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a hedge about him and his house? All that he has on every side? Haven't you blessed the work of his hands? Of course he's going to love you, God. You've given him everything that he has. Why would he not? Anybody would do that. Hey, men are selfish by nature. And if you're going to give him everything he needs, of course he's going to say that he loves you and that he blesses you and, and all of this. If you want to test him, take it away, and then see what he does. So he accuses Job of loving God for false reasons. For being selfish, basically. But he also points a finger at God here. Did you notice it? What is he saying about God? What did God do to Job? You protected him. You put a hedge about him. Basically, he's saying, God, you've been too good to Job. You've been too good? Think about that a minute. What's the first time, when is the first time we find Satan in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, right? Comes in the form of the serpent in the Garden of Eden to Eve. And he says to Eve, did God really say you shall not eat 
of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden? You should eat of it. Why? Because the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will know good and evil. Basically, Satan was saying, God's holding back on you. He's not giving you something that you really want and should have. So Satan says to Eve, God's not good enough. I mean, Satan says, yes, says to Eve, God is not good enough. Satan says about God in this passage, you're too good. So which is it? Is God not good enough or is he too good? And Satan uses whatever means he can, in any way he can, to get you to get your eyes off of the Lord and onto something else. So that's Satan's character, and that's the way he thinks about you. He accuses you of things, and that's, that's his whole purpose, and he's bent on that. But we're also shown in this section the sovereignty of God and his power over Satan. You see that in verse uh, 12. Satan gives, I mean, God gives Satan permission to touch Job at this point. Satan makes his accusation. Job only loves you because you've given him this stuff. And so God says, okay, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He's in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Satan was not allowed to do a thing without God's permission. And I think this is pretty clearly stated here. Satan, you can go this far and no farther. What he was allowed to do, God allowed him to do it. But he put limits on it. Satan was bound by those limits and could not go past them. So, there was a day in heaven. We see a bunch of things in here. The reality of heaven angels and Satan. We see God's attitude toward his obedient children. Satan's attitude toward God's obedient children. We see the awesome power and sovereignty of God demonstrated and displayed here. Lastly, verse 13, there was a day on the earth. Horrible day. Day of destruction for Job. Four horrible messages come to Job, and we can only imagine what that might have been like. Everything that Job's life was about, all of the things that surrounded his life that brought him joy and satisfaction in this life, all of a sudden, in a moment, were gone. Everything. We see also here the power that Satan does possess when God allows him to have it. How in the world could he get the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and the weather to all cooperate at the same time? I don't know. But it took some doing. Satan had the power to do it. The Sabaeans raided his oxen, all 500 of them, took them away and killed every servant that was there, except for one. They let Satan obviously let go so he could go tell him. Fire from heaven fell and consumed the sheep. What was that? I don't know. Lightning strike on the barn, all trapped inside. Speculate, I guess, but whatever it was, fire took all the sheep and they were burnt up. Servants were burned and gone, except for one who ran back and told Job. Another group of people, the Chaldeans, came and stole all the camels, all 3,000 of them. They took them 
and they slew the servants with the edge of the sword. Again, one person remained to go back and tell Job the horrible news. And on top of all that, someone came and maybe Job said, stop after he heard the word, your sons or your children. I don't know. But a hurricane-force wind came, knocked the house down, it collapsed and crushed his kids to death so that there was nothing left except his lovely wife told him to go curse God and die. Apparently Satan had gotten to her as well. Four horrible messages. One credible response. I get amazed every time I read it. Verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That was a Middle Eastern historic way of showing that he was in mourning, sadness over what had happened. I think people still tear their clothes today. They'll, they'll rip the clothes when somebody dies or when something happens like this. The shaving of the head uh, oftentimes would be accompanying with, with putting ashes on the head uh, just to show a, a discomfort over what's happening. It was a very visible sign uh, that somebody was in mourning over something. And so Job did that. He was right to do it. But what did he do? fell to the ground Job's life was characterized by awesome character qualities. We see in heaven that God was bragging on Job. And even when everything was taken away, worship remained. And that asks that's a serious question in our lives. Do we worship God for nothing? Or do we worship God because He's God? And if everything were taken away from us, how would we respond? Job worshiped. He fell to the ground and worshiped. And he praised God in the next sentence that came out of his mouth. I came into this world with nothing, and I know I'm going to leave this world with nothing. My life is completely in God's hands. He's the giver of everything good. He is the Lord of my life, and if he wishes to take it away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He still blessed God. And still reflected praise to God who just took everything away. And the exclamation point in verse 22, and Job did not sin in all of this, nor did he blame God. You worship God, do I worship God? What does that worship look like? Man, it's so much more than coming here on Sunday morning and singing Power of the Cross or singing some of these songs that we really enjoy together. It is a life. It's a life that is completely given to God. It's going to be exemplified by your character and how you live in this world. It'll be recognized by people. Can't, can't not recognize it. If you're worshiping God, your life will be characterized by honesty and integrity and love for family and the things that Job, Job's life characterized. If you live a life of worship, you can be assured that God will recognize that. He knows you. Don't worry about doing things in secret where nobody else knows because God knows. I always tell the kids, sometimes when you say God knows you, that, that's a double-edged sword. If you're not walking with God and you know that God knows, if you're trying to hide things, the fact that God knows you is no fun. But if you are truly humble before God and you know that God knows you, what a blessing that is. You know that God 
is keeping track of your life. You're going to be judged in the end and rewarded for your humility and your service and your worship to God. Job, though he couldn't see what was going on behind the curtain, he knew that. He understood that. And then lastly, worship is not dependent on the circumstances of our life. Worship transcends that. It goes deeper into our hearts, our minds, our souls who are connected to God by faith. Are you a worshiper this morning? Am I a worshiper? Take a hard look at Job's life and you can get a real good picture of what that looks like. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how clear it is. Lord, I ask that you would Give us a good understanding of worship this morning as we consider the life of Job in this chapter. And I pray that we would make real good application of this in our lives, that we would consider our own lives as to how we live, as to whether our lives are lived for the purpose of worship or for the purpose of our, our own personal gain. We know, Lord, that those two things are going to look differently. I pray, Lord, that we would be concerned about worshiping you not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. <clears throat> I pray that you would allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us, even in this short passage in Job 1, where we understand that, that you have a even a pride over your children who are walking with you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to Enjoy that and know that. That in and of itself would be a part of our worship experience. Lord, help us to, to know that you are sovereign no matter what happens in our lives. No matter how deep we may fall into the trials of this world and this life, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And I pray that you would help us like Job to be able to worship, to be able to say, you have given, you have taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord not sin or blame God. Lord, I thank you for these things and pray that help us to make good application to them in our lives. 